0: 2006, January 12th, Lecture 8, Masses of Radiant Stars, from 162, Winter 2006, uh, Richard Kogge, ready to start in just a moment. All right, let's get going here. A couple of things before we get started. Um, so, as promised, I finally got my act together learning how to do all this new web stuff, and the first generation of the Lecture Audio Podcast is now available. There's a website linked off the main page for the class. If you follow that link, you have two options for what you can do. For those of you who have programs, sometimes referred to as pod collectors or pod catchers or something like that, there's a variety of programs. iTunes is my personal favorite. It's free, but there are lots of others. You just simply cut and paste this nasty little string into your subscribe to podcast, and it will take care of automatic downloads of the recordings if you're interested. It's a simple RSS feed or simple podcast feed. Or if you want to go for a single file, you can simply go here and click on the link and it will bring you up the MP3 file of the audio that I've been recording. These lectures will become available roughly a day, sometimes later if I'm busy for some reason immediately after class. I'll try to keep them up to date and uh, as current as I possibly can, you're under no obligation to use them. Note that because it's called a podcast, podcast is just a brand new word. You do not have to use an iPod. Any of the hundreds of different kinds of MP3 players will work perfectly fine. Windows, PCs, Macs, you name it, they'll listen to them. This gives you a chance if you miss a lecture, you can actually hear the audio from the lecture. and sort of, It's like being there with your eyes closed, but you know, it's sort of like being there. At least you get some idea of what I said, since as many of you have begun to notice, unlike the, those who fill in the gaps between the... Uh, the seats in you that we'll all see on the test next week, I say a lot more than is actually on the slide. demos, answering questions, and so forth. This is your chance to hear some of that again. What's nice about the digital format is you can jump to anywhere in the recording. You don't have to listen to it from front to back. And you can listen to it on your own at your leisure, or if you want to hear it again for some reason. So this will, it's purely experimental. I'll be curious to get feedback from you as to whether you find it useful or not at all, or even if you're, do, if you're using it at all. Um, if, if it turns out this falls over with the great big dead thud and no one is accessing this stuff at all, I'll just stop doing it. But right now it actually turns out to be frighteningly easy to do this, this whole thing. So if you're interested, give it a try. If any of you are stuck on how to do it, you can drop me an email. I'm also working on a little how-to page just to get it. So I thought, yeah, what the heck, keep up with the new technology, let's, let's, let's give it a try. What the heck, might work. Okay. Let's do our question for the day. This is based on yesterday's lecture, and our finger exercise for this morning is based on stellar brightnesses. And the fact that we can use stellar brightness and stellar luminosity combined with the distance to tell us something about objects. So, this question today is as follows. Two stars have the same apparent brightness as seen from the Earth, but one star is three times further away than the other. You've measured its parallax, and you know that it's got a three times smaller parallax. From this, We can immediately conclude that the more distant star must be, is it A, three times more luminous, B, three times less luminous, C, nine times less luminous, D, nine times more luminous, and E, the same luminosity. So I've covered about all the bases there. Take your pick, A, B, C, D, or E, just like you went on a test. This is a good example of a test question, by the way. A little bit requires you to put a couple pieces together. And again just to keep yourselves honest just you know scribbling in the upper right hand corner or something just so you can't sort of change your answer sort of oh, was everyone's hands going up okay has everyone had a chance to make their guess all right discuss the question of the people around you and see if you can come to a consensus I'll give you about a minute to, to chat it up for a while Sounds like the chatter is going down, so consensus has been reached of some kind. All right, let's see a show of hands. How many of you changed your answer as a consequence of discussion with people? All right, now a moment of truth. How many of you said that the more distant star must be three times more luminous, A? B, three times less luminous. C, nine times less luminous. D, nine times more luminous. E, the same luminosity. Yeah, that's pretty straightforward. Good. Two pieces here. One is they're three times more distant. Brightness goes like one over distance squared. So you know it's got to go like three squared or nine something. If the two stars are the same apparent brightness, that means they look as bright to each other in the sky. But if one is three times further away, it's going to be nine times less apparent brightness. So in order to be the same brightness as the near star, it's got to be putting out nine times more light in total so that that when it gets diluted by going over the longer distance, you can see it. So very good. You all got the inverse square law. It better be more luminous, and luminous like the square. Excellent. Very good. Okay. Let's blank that. Switch to that. Go back to our regular screen and get into today's lecture. So yesterday we learned about the intrinsic brightness of stars, how we get to the luminosity, how much power it's really putting out, by measuring its apparent brightness, and knowing something about its distance. Today we want to go after another of the important physical properties of a star, namely the mass and the radius. Mass measures how much matter is contained in the star, and radius is a measure of the physical size of the star, twice the diameter, half the diameter. So how tightly packed is the star? We'd like to know both physical quantities, and they're both going to turn out to be very challenging to measure. So the key ideas for today's lecture is to introduce how we measure masses for stars and it turns out the only way we have to measure masses is using binary stars. I cannot measure the mass of a single lone star unless I can see something orbiting it either another star or if I'm very lucky a planet. Now in the case of the Sun we have all the planets we can use. But in the case of other stars, they're so far away, I can't see those planets, I can't measure the mass, without having to have another star nearby. This method has been used for only about 150 stars. We know hundreds of thousands of stars, and we'll see why that is, and what the requirements are for that. We're going to, get, going to introduce the types of binary stars. Some large fraction, more than 50% of all stars, come in pairs of stars. There are three basic types, so-called visual binaries, spectroscopic binaries and eclipsing binaries. And we'll define each of those in turn and what their usefulness is to us for studying the masses of stars. And finally, at the very end of the lecture, I want to say something about measuring stellar radii. The details of the how that's done is actually sort of beyond the scope of this course. It's highly technical. but surprisingly, even though it should be very difficult, we've measured the mass radii now for more than 600 stars. And in fact this number is probably beginning to approach a thousand stars. How do we get through that trick and what does that tell us? We'll see at the end of the lecture. So today is about measuring important physical property of the star, how much matter there is and how tightly packed it is, its radius. Now the way we measure masses on Earth, the way we usually think about measuring masses is you have like a spring scale. You're gonna measure your mass, which we usually equate with our weight. But in reality, the way we measure masses is by looking at the effects of gravity on those objects. For example, if I want to weigh my, if I want to measure my mass, I step on a spring scale and see how much the force of gravity compresses that spring. So I am measuring the gravitational force upon me. Force has units of pounds in the English system, so I say, oh, I weigh 160 some pounds or what, whatever it is the bathroom scale said this morning. Similarly, I could not use a, a spring scale. I might use a balance where I put a weight of a certain mass. Wait. a big chunk of metal or something of a given mass on one side of the spring balance, and I stand on the other side and wait until they come into balance and say, oh, I just put 80 kilos worth of lead in the other side, therefore the professor's mass is 80 kilos. And there I'm using balancing gravitational force on a spring. So gravity plays a role, even though we don't really think of it consciously, in measuring terrestrial masses. I can measure the mass of the Earth in a number of ways. For example, I could drop rocks and see how fast they accelerate. And I know how to compute the gravitational force on a rock of the Earth. Or a much be- another way is I can set up an, an, an orbiting satellite, say like the Hubble Space Telescope, or maybe a very precise satellite whose position I know extremely well, like one of the GPS constellation, or even more precise, there's special experiments, and measure how fast that, s- that satellite orbits at a given distance from the center of the Earth. And I know if it's in a circular orbit, I can use Newton's laws of gravity to derive the mass of the Earth because the mass of the satellite is insignificant. Or I can measure the mass of the Moon or the mass of the Earth-Moon system using the orbital motions of the Moon, which are very well measured. I can also measure the mass of the Sun this way. I can't go and put the Sun in a spring balance, but I can see how fast the Earth and all the planets orbit around the Sun. And by using that information and Newton's version of Kepler's third law, I can tell you how many grams there are, or kilograms there are, combined, com- contained in the sun. And I might find out, for example, that there are approximately 2 times 10 to the 33 grams. makes up the mass of the sun. So the way we're doing this is, in every case, we're exploiting orbital motions in the influence of gravity to measure masses. So obviously, if I want to measure the mass of anything else, I've got to look for orbital motions in that system. I've got to find two stars that are orbiting each other. Now, if I go out and look in the sky, I actually see pairs of stars together, very close together on the sky. We call a lot, some of these, however, are not really true binaries. They're not actually orbiting each other, and they fool us. These are called, not surprisingly, apparent binary stars. These are two stars where I just simply get a chance projection of two stars along the line of sight. They look close. But very often these stars are at tremendously greater distances, many, many tens or even hundreds of parsecs across. A good example is up in the Big Dipper, for example. There's a star which looks fairly bright, and another star relatively bright nearby. When you look at them through the telescope, you say, man, those two stars must be orbiting each other. Till you realize that the nearby star is, in fact, a small dwarf star relatively close to us, and the other star is, in fact, a background, very, very luminous giant star. They just happen to be lined up by accident in the sky. And there's lots and lots of apparent binaries. As you watch them over time, you don't see them move relative to each other, except maybe long-time proper motions, and then they kind of move apart in opposite directions or something and give away their nature. Or, as we'll learn as we learn more about the properties of stars, there are ways to tell stars apart. There are some properties we can use to guess the luminosity and say, oh, yeah, if that star really was a giant orbiting that little star in front, it had to be way brighter, sort of. Along the same lines is the question we asked here today at the beginning of class. What I really want to find are what are referred to as true binary stars. And these are the stars I'm going to talk about for the rest of the lecture. These are a pair of stars that are actually orbiting each other. They're bound to each other by gravity. So they orbit around their common center of mass with some period and some separation between them. It turns out that binary stars are not very rare. They constitute about 60% of nearby stars around us have two or more stars surrounding them. For example, here's, here's a good example, for a long time people thought that the North Star, Polaris, was a binary star. It was just discovered in the last few months that Polaris is in fact a triple star system. There is a small dwarf, a third star, in that system. The fact that stars can be doubles or triples or even quadruples are known is telling us something about the fact that some stars all form together. And some of them form a lot closer than each other. The sun is not. The sun is a lone star, if you will, although it has a system of planets around it. So the sun is actually in the minority. Forty percent of nearby stars are all by themselves in space, ignoring for the moment the planets. So binary means another star, another thing burning hydrogen to helium or another big massive object nearby. And these are the binary stars we're going to care about. Because planets I can't see. We've never taken a direct picture of a planet around another star yet. They're just way too faint. We can't see them and we can't trace their orbital motions easily. There's some tricks we can use, but in very, very rare cases. But if there are two stars and they're both bright, I can see them both or be able to sense that there are two stars there, as we'll see in a moment, I can then use that information to try to measure the masses of those stars. So that's really what we're going to be setting about is, how do I use this information from binary stars to measure masses? Well, of course, once I've defined true binary stars, there are different types. And each of them have greater or lesser utility to me in this quest to measure stellar masses. The first and the most simple, these are the visual binaries. You go out and you look at it and you see two stars next to each other. And as you watch them over time, they appear to orbit each other around their common center of mass. If they've got a proper motion, they move together across the sky because they all share this general bulk motion of their center of mass and I watch the orbit about the common center of mass. For example, the nearest stars to the Earth, Alpha Centauri, the nearest bright star to the Earth, it's a Sun-like star a little over four light years away, actually has a binary companion and you can see those two stars with the naked eye or certainly easily seen with a telescope. And again, like I said, about 60 percent of nearby stars are, are binaries. Now what happens if the stars get very, very far away? Well, if they're really close, you can see their separation, but as they move further and further away, they get closer and closer together, and eventually they get so close together that the blurring of the Earth's atmosphere smears the images out, and I can't really tell if there's two stars there or one star by looking at it directly. But if I take a spectrum of the star and I watch the spectral lines over time, because the star is orbiting, sometimes one star is moving towards me and the other star is moving away. And I'll get a successive Doppler shift as the lines come towards me, blue shift, and go away from me in redshift. So watching the spectrum over time gives away, oh look, there's cyclic orbital motions going on inside that system. One set of lines is redshifted, the other set of lines is blue shifted. And I call that a spectroscopic binary. It looks like one star to our crude telescopes here on the ground or in space, but its spectrum gives away its double nature. It shows that there are two distinct objects there orbiting each other. The third and rarer kind of binary stars, imagine that the two stars, instead of orbiting in the plane of the sky, orbit so that they're exactly aligned, so that one star actually eclipses the other every now and then. In that case, I have something called an eclipsing binary star. I actually see the light dip as one star passes behind the other, I get less light. Just like when the moon passes behind the the Earth's shadow, I get less light out. In this case, both of them are self-luminous, so I'm just simply blocking the light from one with the body of the other. And of course when they're each in front of each other, you get the light from the second one, but it blocks the starlight from behind it. And We'll see examples and graphically here in a second. Those turn out to be, while they're rare and sound like they're exotic, they will turn out to be extremely important to us. They give us the very best masses of all for measuring stars. Because of that special geometry, I get to, to break a lot of so-called degeneracies in the solution, and the matter masses that I get out of this, in fact, are very, very precise. So let's look at a few examples here. Let's walk through the different types of binaries. Here's an example of a binary star. This is actually Sirius, the dog star. The bright star you would see if you walk outside at night. It's the brightest star in the winter sky. Sirius is, in fact, a double star. The main Sirius, the one we see... Is this bright star here is in center? The, the frame of reference they've chosen for this orbit is the bright star, and it turns out there's a little tiny faint white dwarf star, as it's called. We'll know, we'll learn what a white dwarfs are a little later in detail, which has a period of approximately 50 years. Okay, there's a number up here is 50.09 years. Here's the position right now in 2006, where that Sirius B, is, as it's called, it was in 2004 and it will swing around over the course of the next 50 years. So the first thing we notice about apparent binaries is that we're dealing with fairly long orbital periods sometimes. This is a very big separation between them. It's on a roughly elliptical orbit about the common center of mass, although we've chosen as our frame of reference the bright star, so I'm not in the center of mass frame here. And you have to kind of be patient. It takes a while because if they're far enough apart that you can see them, because p squared is proportional to a cubed, a la Kepler, it's going to have a long period, and therefore it's a multi-generational thing to measure the orbit of a, of a typical apparent binary star. Well, let's get this for back up for a second to remind you about this whole center of mass thing is, because it's very important to us in figuring this out. Let's take a pair of stars. For example, Alpha Centauri and a little red dwarf companion, mass 1 and mass 2. Newton told us that Kepler... Kepler told us that... Orbits are ellipses with the sun at one focus. Newton generalized that to say that two objects orbit each other with the center of mass at one focus on either circles or ellipses, meaning sections of a cone. The center of mass is the imaginary balance point between two masses. You can imagine putting a stick through these two stars and balancing them and finding that balance point. We call that balance point the center of mass. Not surprisingly, just like the masses on a stick demonstration, the center of mass is always closer to the more massive object because you've got to get closer to that to get to the balance arm. The distance between them, if they're on circular orbits, measures the so-called semi-major axis. And I measure that by simply watching it on the sky and measuring when to get to the maximum angle between them, or if they're in very conveniently in circular orbits, measure it simply as angle. I know the distance. Distance times angle gives me the semi-major axis. So semi-major axis in a visual binary is distance dependent. It's directly proportional to the distance. The other thing I get is that balance arm business gives me the ratio of the masses. If I had two equal mass objects, where would the balance point be? Be in dead center. What if one mass is four times bigger than the other? Where's that balance point going to be? It's roughly a fourth of the way between them. Actually, it's a fifth of the way between them because you've got to add the two parts of the stick. So the balance, if you have four to one mass ratio, your balance arm, you have to have a a short stick on the big mass. The other stick has to be four times larger for the second mass. And so four plus one is five, so it's at one fifth. So you can find the center of mass is simply the inverse of the mass ratio. So the the ratio of the distances from the center of mass is the ratio of the masses. And I've shown the m1 over m2 is proportional to a2 over a1. That's one piece of the algebraic puzzle we're going to need to solve to separate out the masses. So just by looking at the orbit, I can measure its size, semi-major axis, and I can measure the mass ratio by seeing where the center of mass of that motion is. If the two stars are roughly equal masses, they'll appear to be orbiting around an empty point in space. That empty point is simply the balance point, the center of mass. Here's a couple of movies to demonstrate this sort of center of mass thing. For circular orbits, wait for quick time to launch here, The center of mass is shown as the green point here. There's a big massive blue star and a kind of a faint orange dwarf star. The mass ratio here is 3.6 to 1, and they're on a perfectly circular orbit. This is exactly what you would expect. You can imagine an imaginary stick between them. You balance it on your finger, and then you kind of twirl it around your finger and it would sit there, moving around, takes, both of them have exactly the same period. Notice it takes, they always have, there's an imaginary line between their centers that always goes through that stationary center of mass. The bigger mass is closer, the smaller mass is further away, they both have the same period, and they just go round and around and around. So this is what a binary star would look like we're looking down on the orbital plane. What if, however, what's less obvious for people to visualize is what it looks like if they're on elliptical orbits? In this case, you'll notice that the center of mass is always between the two in the same proportion, 3.6 to 1. But you'll notice that sometimes that center of mass is far from the middle star, sometimes it's closer. Also, you can see the effect of Kepler's second law here. The closer you are to the center of mass, the faster your angular speed, so that you sweep out equal areas in equal times. And not surprisingly, when they're far away, they're slow, and then they dive really quick on the inside. And you would see this pattern of motions on the sky if these two stars were in an elliptical orbit around each other. The focus of that ellipse, would one of those foci, would be located at the center of mass. So just by watching the stars tracing out their pattern across the sky, I can measure the period, the size of the orbit, the mass ratio, and the ellipticity of the orbit. Put all those pieces together to form the mass of the binary star. I need one more piece, and that is the most complicated piece, Newton's version of Kepler's third law. That is that the period squared is proportional to the size of the semi-major axis cubed through this rather nasty bit of algebra that includes the mass ratio. So there's three pieces here. I don't care what the four pi and g are. They're just sort of to make the units come out right. And in fact, if I pick period and years, semi-major axis and astronomical units, and mass in units of the mass of the sun, not kilograms or something, then the ratio pi squared over g in those units becomes one, and I get rid of them. In fact, you do that on the homework. So I need to measure some things. First of all, I need to measure the period. The way I measure the period is just follow the orbit until it completes one circuit, so I can measure P. P is an observable, and it's distance-independent. If two stars take two years to go around each other, it's going to take two years whether I'm there with them or whether they're across the universe from me. I measure the semi-major axis from the angular separation of the two on the sky. If it's a circular orbit, it's easy. If it's an elliptical orbit, I have to trace out the entire ellipse in order to do that measurement. And then there's all kinds of nasty projections that go on, but we're going to ignore those for the second. But the important thing about the semi-major axis, as I've said before, is that it depends on the distance. Because I measure angles on the sky, but I have to know how to convert that angle into astronomical units, and I have to do that through the distance in parsecs. So if I measure the angle in arc seconds and I measure the distance in parsecs, I'll be able to measure the semi-major axis in astronomical units, which is the unit that I want for making the, mass, the, the measurement symbol. Once I measure those, the only unknown left in the system is the sum of the masses, the total mass of the system. So I get m1 plus m2. But because I've got the geometry of the center of mass, I have the mass ratio from that center of mass argument, and then the rest is just icky algebra that I'm not going to show you because you don't want to see any icky algebra this morning any more than I want to do it. So it's a straightforward process. You just have to be really patient and take very, very accurate measurements of distance and angular separation, wait for a period to complete, and some other details for some systems are, of course, not cooperative, but you can do it. Well, it looks very straightforward. In fact, there are a lot of problems with this you would think this would be the easiest way to measure masses. It turns out to give us the least precise masses. Now here's sort of the flip side. The reality of the situation is sometimes measurement's hard. But first of all, in order for the stars to be far enough apart that you can see them from the ground, they're going to have a big semi-major axis. The period squared is proportional to semi-major axis cubed. So as the orbit gets bigger, the period gets longer. In Some cases you have to wait for decades Some nearby binary stars have periods measured in hundreds and thousands of years. So we haven't traced full orbits because we haven't been able to watch them long enough. The second thing is you need to work out how this thing is projected on the sky. All my movies I cheated. I simply did the projection straight on the sky. Life isn't going to be that simple. It's going to be some wonky angle. Now you've got to take all that stuff and project it on some wonky angle on the sky and then deproject it. That turns out to be really hard, as you can imagine. Especially if the orbit is at all elliptical, then you're really in trouble. But the real kicker, the real thing that really makes the visual binaries tough, and why we only have a handful of good masses from visual binaries, is because we have to measure the semi-major axis. The semi-major axis appears from the ground to be an angle. To convert that angle, I have to multiply by the distance in parsecs. That's okay. I can measure parallaxes, but only for nearby stars. So it kind of works out that I'm biased towards nearby stars because the further away a star is, I either can't get its distance, but I also am not going to be able to see the stars apart because they'll be too close on t- on, this, on my sky. But remember, p squared is proportional to a cubed, and the mass is down there. So to solve for the mass, the mass is going to be the ratio of a cubed over p squared. That means that the Mass I derive from a visual binary depends upon distance to the third power. So if I make a 10% error in the distance, and remember I can do 10% distances only about to about a few hundred parsecs, that makes a 30% error in the mass. That's like saying, yeah, well, I know I'm kind of five foot ten plus or minus about two inches, but I may be 160 plus or minus 20, 30 pounds. You know, we'd really like to know the mass much more precisely than that. And that's the problem. There's an imprecision because I've got a big lever arm and small errors make a huge error on that lever arm over long distances. So these distance errors, small ones, add up really fast because it appears to the third power. And that's the real bugaboo in this whole thing, is it's just really hard to measure masses with visual binaries because it's so sensitively dependent on getting the distance right. As we saw in the first lecture this week, getting distances is really hard. So that's why even though we have lots of visual binaries in the sky, it's ver- we don't have a lot of good masses for them yet because we either haven't been able to watch them long enough to get a good period or we still got problems with the deprojection and especially with the distance. And it just is a subject of refinement over and over through the years. So that's the issue with visual binaries. What are some other things we can do? Well, one of these is, first of all, remember that as an object moves either towards you or away from you, you get a Doppler shift so we might be able to use the Doppler shift to tell us something about the orbital motions, especially for stars that really are binaries but they're so far away and so close I can't see them apart. In fact most stars are too far away for us to resolve into a pair with our telescopes, but they appear as as binaries because of the Doppler shifts due to their orbital motions. So if I sit there and look at a star and I say well looks like there's two stars mashed together and I really can't see them apart but I put all the light down my telescope busted into a spectrum and I see the spectral absorption lines in the atmospheres of the stars and I notice that one set of absorption lines is always red shifted and the other ones blue shifted and then a little while later they swap positions and so this pairs of lines tend to move back and forth red and blue that cyclic motion says I'm orbiting something's orbiting here something's going sometimes towards me sometimes away The amount of the shift tells me the orbital speed. So I can use that information. The period tells me how long it takes to go back and forth as p. The velocity turns out to be related to the lever arm through some geometry. So I can actually guess the semi-major axis through the combination of the period and the orbital speeds. There's a circular speed that's proportional to the mass. The algebra is sufficiently nasty for that one. I'm not going to bother to show you that. I'm just going to show you a picture of how it works. We take two stars, A and B. These, in fact, are the A and B of my cartoon here. I have a set of simple hydrogen lines in their spectrum. I've picked two stars that make hydrogen lines. They're they're mythological stars. If those stars were not moving at all, the hydrogen line, the red hydrogen line, and the blue, and the blue-green hydrogen line would be the dashed line here. But because star B is moving away from me, and it's on the big circle, it's moving faster, it's moving away, so it has a big red shift, and so the absorption line appears redward of where it would be with no shift. The big star is closer to the center of mass. It has a smaller orbital velocity, but it's moving towards me at this instant, so it has a blue shift. Then I wait half an orbital period. Half an orbital period later, star A, the big star, is moving away, so now I get a small red shift, but star B is moving towards me. It's got the faster orbital f- speed, So I have a fast blue shift. And not just in that line, but in all the lines. So I see this patterning of lines moving back and forth and back and forth. Well, let's put it in motion. I've now got a pair of spectral lines here, star A and star B. And we'll set them into motion. So as I watch the stars orbit over time, I see their spectral absorption lines slop back and forth sometimes red shifted, sometimes blue shifted. The smaller star that's further away moves faster. The bigger star, which is closer to the center of mass, moves slower. The relative speed turns out to be exactly in that ratio of the center of mass balance point. So even though I can't see the stars apart, I can measure the balance point from the ratio of the velocities. Cool. I can measure the period, gives me one part of Kepler's third law, and and then putting all the various pieces together, I can then in principle measure the mass of the pairs of stars. Very simple. Even better is if I can somehow get a super telescope or super resolution method and actually see the angular distance between those two stars, I can get extremely accurate masses. Now, There's problems with this technique as well. It gives us a lot of extra information that lets me actually make the math simpler. In fact, the math works simpler in the direction that now things become proportional to distance rather than distance cubed so that the spectroscopic binary method is way less sensitive to my distance estimate than the visual binaries were. The problem is, is because I don't see the two stars separately, there's a little bit of uncertainty there as to what that true semi-major axis is, and that kind of clouds the issue. The other problem is, because I can't exactly trace the orbit on the sky, I don't know how it will be inclined. So all I can do is estimate what the mass might be, but I don't know whether I'm seeing it edge-on or very close to face-on, and that affects the observed velocities, and that makes life difficult. I can't, can't really get a good mass for that because of that. Everything still depends critically on knowing the distance, but it's less sensitive. It only goes proportional to distance rather than distance squared. So if I can solve these problems, if I can see the semi-major axis, and if I can measure the velocities well and get that tilt, I can actually get a very, very good mass. The problem is, that's an awful lot of ifs all lined up. And so while these should, in principle, give me much better mass estimates than the visual binaries, it's actually technologically technologically harder to do. There is a new technology that has been developed in the last few years called optical interferometry that gives me the super-resolution technique. And one of the main targets of people doing that has been traditional, popular, close-spectroscopic binary stars. And so we're starting to now see the first generation of really good spectroscopic binary masses coming out, but it's taken a long time to get there. This is really hard. Questions about this before we, we dive on? The third kind of binary is the eclipsing binary. These are two stars that orbit, but the orbit is nearly edge-on with respect to my line of sight. And as a consequence, one star occasionally eclipses the other. Now, of course, because they're orbiting around their common center of mass, they usually are also spectroscopic binaries. So sometimes one star is moving towards you, eclipses, away from you eclipses, and so forth so I can measure the orbital speeds because they're also spectroscopic binaries. So they're a special case of the spectroscopic binary in which I get the eclipse, which means they're very, very close to the line of sight. That eclipse helps me a lot because, first of all, it tells me the projection on the sky right away. I know I'm in projected perpendicular to the plane of the sky. So I combine the spectra with precision measurements of the orbits to measure the orbital speeds. These are very exciting because I don't need to see these stars as separate. The eclipse geometry actually gives me all the information, but there's an even cooler thing. It's hard to demonstrate algebraically. In fact, I had a graduate class do that, and half my students couldn't do it. The the mass you get out of the eclipsing binaries is distance independent. You don't need to know the distance at all. So visual binaries depend on distance cubed. Spectroscopic binaries depend upon distance, but if you have an eclipse, you can eliminate the distance from the equation altogether. And so you actually don't care how far away the star is per se. So it's extremely powerful. In fact, we've measured the masses of eclipsing binary stars in other galaxies for which distance estimates are absolutely hopeless. So it's a very, very powerful method. Unfortunately, it requires very rare stars. If you could see the stars up close, what you would see is one star, and I'll show this as a small star orbiting a big star. At position one, when I observe it, I get the combined light of star one plus star two. And that's going to be this level of brightness. It should be as bright as it gets because I'm seeing both stars. When the star moves in front of, star two moves in front of the big star, I still see all of its light, but it's blocking a little bit of the light from the background star. And so I get a dip in the brightness of the total system. Because I don't see them separately, I just see them as if they're combined. Three, now nobody's blocking anybody, so I see star one plus star two, and I'm back to the original level. But now star two, which is very, very faint, passes behind the big star. I lose its light completely, but because it's faint, it's only a small contributor to the total light. And so I see this characteristic, lots of light, big dip, lots of light again, small dip repeating over and over again. Now because the star is a finite size the diminution in brightness is as it slowly begins to eclipse. So I get a partial eclipse, total eclipse, partial eclipse, no eclipse, partial eclipse totally eclipsing the second star, partial eclipse as it peaks out and off it goes. This is so characteristic. I can look at millions and millions of stars in another galaxy. This pattern of change in brightness just stands out like a sore thumb and says, hey, I'm an eclipsing binary, study me in more detail. Again, of course, I can't resist a movie because you really need to see this in motion. Here's that same system, although just to make things easy to see, I've put the center of mass just a little bit offline. The red dot is the center of mass. And you can see what happens to the brightness graph as one star passes in front of another. So it's a very, very characteristic pattern. This particular type of variable st- star, called an eclipsing binary star, is, are wonderful when you find them. In fact, one of my graduate students right now is working on his PhD, studying looking for variable stars in small nearby clusters of galaxies, and the ones we really want to find are these so-called detached eclipsing binaries because that would allow us to measure the masses of these stars in these clusters very accurately. So right now we're just doing the reconnaissance, looking, literally sifting through tens and hundreds of thousands of stars to find those handful of eclipsers. And then we'll then follow those up with spectroscopic observations to measure velocities and hopefully come up with measuring some stellar masses. So it's a terrific technique. It's just it requires on finding the rarest of the rare systems. There's also some other systematics that come into play, but they're not important to us. So the problem, of course, is that while these give us superb masses, the eclipsing stars are very rare. The other problem, of course, is stars are not sharp-edged. They have fuzzy edges. The fuzzy edges make it hard to measure the details of the eclipse in detail. If you get a partial eclipse, then you've got a real problem figuring out what the angles are and stuff like that. And the other problem is the close. if stars get too close together, they'll actually start distorting each other because of tides, and it'll actually be really, really hard to, to take all the pieces apart. But what's really exciting about this is that it, it works so well. The very most massive stars we know of in the universe have had their masses measured using the eclipsing binary method. In fact, there's a pair of them out in near the center of our galaxy that could be as much as 160 solar masses, 280 solar mass stars. So it's very exciting when you can find one of these things because it can really give you a handle on some of the extremes of the mass range. And the bottom line is this. Of all the methods I've discussed today, the very best, the most precise masses we have, come from those handfuls of eclipsing binary stars. In fact, for the most massive stars, which will become more important when we talk about details of that of stellar structure next week, The most massive stars, those masses all come from eclipsing binary stars, rare massive stars in rare eclipsing binary stars. We only have a handful, but those handful have been key to helping us piece together part of the puzzle of stellar structure. Masses really matter. The masses of stars really matter to us in understanding how stars work. The range of stellar masses, we've done this for about 150 masses, 150 stars now, 150 pairs of stars. The range of masses that we see ranges from 7% the mass of the sun up to about 60 times the mass of the sun for the best determined masses. There are some very rare stars whose masses may go up anywhere from 80 to 120 solar masses. These are more contentious. People argue about whether we've got all the details right, but they're extremely rare, so we'll let people still keep arguing about them. It could range that these are the maximum masses of stars we see around us. But the first thing we notice is you don't have really super big stars and you don't have super small stars. This 7% turns out to be very important. 0.07 turns out to be about the threshold below which you're no longer a star. And we'll, We'll learn more about that when we talk about stellar structure in the coming weeks. The upper mass limit may also be important. There may be processes at work that prevent you from becoming super massive. And that's telling us something about the star formation process. Why is it stars can't be any all so- size they want to be? The bottom line, the real bottom line, tattoo this on your brain somewhere for the upcoming quizzes. Stellar masses can only be measured for binary stars. If I have a lone star all by itself, if I have nothing orbiting it, I simply do not know its mass. I simply cannot measure it directly. Now, there are things we can do to estimate the mass, but that's only by comparing the other properties of that star to stars which are in binary systems for which I can measure the masses using the techniques that I've just described. So even though mass is a very fundamental physical quantity, it's really one of the hardest things to measure in astronomy. It's even harder than distances. I have distances to hundreds of thousands of stars. I have proper motions of millions of stars. I have masses for 150 That gives you some idea in proportion of how hard that is. Yeah, the question here. That's right. The question here is you could measure the mass of a lone star if you could see a planet. Absolutely. You have to see something orbiting something else. For example, the Sun is a lone star, but we know its mass probably as accurately as we know any stellar mass because we're orbiting it. And in fact, there are a handful now of stars, lone stars with massive Jupiter planets for which, in fact, those Jupiter planets eclipse the star. They're called transiting planets. And for those three or four objects, we now have very good stellar masses. But they're the only ones. There's actually a a couple of other techniques we can use. There's tricks like gravitational microlensing. There's all kinds of other things we can use. But they're actually even harder than the binary stars. So I've got 150 binaries with good masses. I've got three or four with transiting planets. I have one, just count them, one on the finger that was measured using a special technique called gravitational microlensing, and you can all take great pride. That measurement was made by OSU professor of astronomy astronomy Andrew Gould and one of his graduate students a couple years ago. So we at Ohio State have the one soul measured by techniques other than orbits, masses, for stars. Out of all the millions of stars we know, we rock. Stellar radii. Last slide. The other thing you'd like to know is how big the star itself is. Measuring that directly turns out to be really bone-crushingly difficult. And the reason is because stars are far away and they're not all that big. If I took the sun and put it out one parsec away, which is actually just barely out to the nearest stars, it would be 9.3 milli arc seconds across, 93 ten-thousandths of an arcsecond. Well, we can measure parallaxes to 0.01 arc seconds from the ground, which means pretty much to measure ground-based measurements by looking with a telescope for the diameters of stars. For stars like the sun, you're pretty well screwed. But there are some tricks. There are always tricks. These methods are way, way technical. Interferometry can be done for single stars. Lunar occultations. Eclipsing binaries. The depth of that eclipse can be used to measure radii but that's for binary stars, but you need the distance in that case. So there's the one place where you need the distance in an eclipsing binary if you want to turn the depth of that eclipse dip into an actual radius for the star. But if you put these things together, there's a really surprising conclusion. Even though I just told you masses were the hardest thing to measure and stellar radii should be even harder, we've actually measured the radii of 600 stars today, and it's actually getting closer to 1,000. And the reason is because of the success of both the lunar occultation and interferometry measurements that we've made to date. Now It turns out that there's a trick in here. We've mostly measured the sizes of giant stars, stars that are really big and swollen compared to the sun. We have very few radii for stars like the sun. But there are going to be other ways we can infer the relative radius, and we'll see more of that as we study more of the properties of stars later this week and next. Okay, see you all tomorrow.